I'm excited about this message tonight. I just want to get out there, get that out there right at first. I'm very excited. I've got a lot to share, so I just want to jump right into it. Can we do that? Uh, I've got a short little video clip I'd like to start off with. And then there's China. Few places in the world are seeing the explosion of God's power like the underground church in China is experiencing. And in the last 60 years, China's communist government has done its best to wipe Christianity off the map. What you are about to see is some of the rarest footage on the planet. In this church, the people wake up at 4.30 to come together for two hours to pray and worship. They do this every day. This church meets in the only place they are safe, a cave. This church meets on a farm, far away from prying eyes. Here's an example of an underground church outreach. The people sitting are Christians. The people who are standing are not. This particular preacher was once crippled, but was healed when someone prayed for her. She now preaches the good news of Jesus to anyone who will listen. In this particular meeting, over 1,000 people became Christians. Here Christians cast out demons from an 18-year-old girl. She's now a preacher. In Shanghai alone, there are over 3,000 house churches, just like this one. One thing Dennis pointed out to me was that most of the underground churches in China are actually led by young people. These kids have all come out of the communist system, and they want nothing to do with it. They only want to spread the love of Jesus to everybody they meet. This is a music school. Well, that's the cover anyway. It's really a training school for students who want to be pastors. The government thinks they're simply learning to play instruments. One thing I quickly realized about the Chinese church is that it's a lot different from the American one. For one thing, they think a four-hour sermon is short. In this church service, it's 120 degrees inside the building. The people meet for 12 hours straight. Dennis told me one story about a time he went to a very remote village in China to preach. He was led into a large room where the people were packed so closely together that he had his back to the wall and could reach out and touch the row in front of him. Everyone stood. There was no room to sit. He asked how long he should preach for, and they told him from 8.30 to 7 at night. Then they asked him, if it wasn't too much trouble, could you come back tomorrow and preach from 8.30 to 7 again? And then, very sheepishly, they asked again, if you'd be so kind, could you come back the day after that and preach from 8.30 to 7? He asked how often he should take breaks, and they told him not to stop. 
The people will wait. Then he asked them what he should preach on. Everything, they replied, from Genesis to Revelation. And then it dawned on him. These people had no Bibles. I wanted to share this video because I think this is Christianity in the most powerful and pure form. Uh, I think this is what the first century church in, church in Acts was like. We just 100% sold out for Jesus. Now, I don't know a whole lot about the underground church in China, but uh, I'm sure they have issues of their own that they have to deal with. I mean, for one, the persecution that they undergo is uh, just horrid and barbaric. Anybody who's read anything like Voice of the Martyrs or similar books just has a glimpse into the type of persecution that people in this part of the world have to go, go through. But I imagine even amongst such dis powerful displays of the gospel, there's still those who fall away under such persecution. But the reality is, is we don't live in China. We live in the United States of America, and uh, we have our own unique issues to deal with. On the surface, it doesn't seem like our issues maybe are as uh, deep or as profound as the one in the underground church, but one thing about their persecution is that it's obvious, right? Um, it's pretty black and white there who are believers and who are not. I imagine there's no gray areas when it comes to people's salvation in these parts of the world. Which actually, our battles seem like they're a little bit more subtle. Which actually makes it more difficult to fight. I mean, it's easier to combat your enemy when you know exactly who it is. I feel like here in the U.S. it's almost like a shadow game. You have to be much more spiritually discerning in these battlegrounds. So, the message tonight here, this is not something that I would typically choose to preach, but it's, uh, it's the word the Lord that gave me, and so I'm going to be obedient to give it. Um, but in reality, all I'm going to be doing here is doing my best to present the word of God. My goal here tonight is to unleash the lion out of its cage that lion being the Word of God. So, I'd like to talk tonight about the spiritual, brown, spiritual battleground we all find ourselves in. Um, I want to take us to the spiritual temperature that we live in. That's going to be the title of the message tonight, is Temperature. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 22. See, I think what we face in this country, both inside and outside of the church, is the need to recognize our sin and to realize the importance of being led by His Spirit, being Spirit-filled. We're going to start in verse 22. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so that he could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed and asked, Could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, No wonder he could cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. You ever been around negative people like that before? Just uh, People that no matter what's going on, they seem to have a way of bringing everything down. The continual pessimists of the world. Um, I know that I can personally easily fall into that trap. And whenever I start going down that road, my wife affectionately starts calling me Eeyore. 
uh, but I need that. It's just the speech, it's always words of death and not life. Uh, kind of people who can always point out the problem in a situation, but never bring anything to the table to fix it. Uh, people who can tell you all about the wrong that you're doing, all about the sin that you have, but they don't have a way to deal with it. They approach the hurting and the lost of the world, uh, and they leave them either the same or worse off than they found them. See, that's one of the issues with the religious spirit. It's, uh, it points out the sin, but then doesn't properly promote the virtue, and the result is people are left frustrated with no power to overcome their issues. And it's funny because when a real believer shows up and actually helps someone, the religiously-minded person is the first to discredit it. Just like when Jesus healed the demon-possessed man. They hear about the supernatural, they even see it, and they say, there's no way that could be real, or there's no way that's actually from God. And it's not obvious on the surface, but I think this occurs because of their own inability to recognize their sin. They can see someone else be healed and, see, and set free, but they can't internalize it. They can't make it personal. They can't reach their own heart. They can't fully grasp this idea of healing, because in their own mind, and their own hearts, they're not in need of healing because they can't recognize their own sin. And I believe the Holy Spirit plays a big role in the ability to recognize sin. The Holy Spirit is the part of the Trinity that brings conviction of sin. So is it so surprising that if you continue to reject the Holy Spirit, if you continue to ignore Him, and you're going to continue to be unaware of your sin? A little further in Matthew 12, starting in verse 31, it says, So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either, either in this world or in the world to come. This is one of those very tough scriptures that I've always just wrestled with. I mean, what is, what is Jesus trying to say here? You can never be forgiven if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? I mean, it seems like some type of salvation loophole or something. Uh, doesn't seem to fit in with the whole testimony of Scripture. But if you look at it closer, I think it does. Because salvation first comes through recognition of your sin, confessing and believing that Jesus is Lord, and accepting His atoning sacrifice for your sins. The first step is to recognize your sin. Without that first step, you can't be forgiven, therefore you can't be saved. And since the Holy Spirit is responsible for bringing this awesome conviction of sin, if you continue to blaspheme against Him, if you continue to push against Him, then you can't be convicted, and therefore you can never be forgiven, and therefore you can never be saved. The Lord showed me a really awesome uh, example of this in Genesis chapter 4. Y'all turn with me there, please. I'm going to start in verse 3. So, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the first of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the first things of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? 
If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. This is one of those other tough passages that I've always wrestled with. I mean, why did God accept Abel's offering but not Cain's? I think to get a clear idea of what is going on here, let's go back in time a little bit from when this event is taking place. Let's go back to Cain and Abel's parents. Um, you know, we all are familiar with the fall of Adam and Eve. and uh, I want to look at the fall in light of what we're reading here and this need for sacrifice. What did God give Adam and Eve to replace the fig leaf that they made for themselves? That's right. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So suffice it to say, an animal had to be killed in order for the nakedness to be covered of Adam and Eve. I want to try to get the illusion of the first time here. Let's try and put ourselves in Adam and Eve's shoes right now. This is the first time in history we have the death of something in the natural, something that had the breath of life in it, and then it didn't. What do you think that kind of experience did to Adam and Eve? Just prior to this animal sacrifice, God explains to them the result of their sin, the, re the result for man and for women and for the snake and really for all of creation. And then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. I like to think that that event of be giving garments of skin had a tremendous impact on Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are now experiencing life in a very different way than they're used to. Life with eyes open to the reality between good and evil. But hey, maybe they look at the animals and they're the same. I mean, these are parts of creation that Adam is familiar with, right? I'd like to think he had a bit of a bond with them probably more so than the other parts of creation, like the trees and the vegetables. I can relate to that. Uh, we're a pet family, uh, and Haley definitely is. Um, I don't know, there's just that certain animal bond relationship that uh, humans can have, and Haley's always bringing home stray dogs, cats. One time she brought home a baby squirrel. And... Uh, Every time she brings them home, the first thing I say is, hey, don't name them, okay? <laughs> I don't know what happens when that name an animal. <laughs> One time we had this little old, pathetic-looking chihuahua or Pomeranian or something. It was curled up in our driveway. Uh, wasn't ours. And sure enough, Haley has it in the house a couple minutes later, feeding it, making a little bed for it, taking care of it. <laughs> first thing I say, don't name them. Um, we end up finding the owner, and uh, owner comes over. We get to talking to him, a nice enough guy. Uh, I still don't know how this happened, but Haley convinces both me and the owner of the dog for us to keep the dog. <laughs> <laughs> and we do. <laughs> this is us for the next couple of months until it just keels over and dies. <laughs> Anyway, I can relate to special relationships between animals and humans, and Haley definitely can. So back to Adam and Eve. We know that Adam names every animal in creation. I like to think there was a special type of bond that he developed with these animals, 
Not to the level that you had with Eve, but uh, a bond nonetheless. Like Pastor Eric was talking about in that one message, um, when you bring the lamb into your house for Passover and it's spending days with you and you, you know, it becomes part of the family and then you have to slaughter it for the Passover. Um, so, here we have Adam and Eve, already probably, probably a little shell-shocked, experiencing life in this new way. Then, God takes one of those animals that Adam names, and he sacrifices it. He kills it. How do you think Adam and Eve reacted to that? I imagine they're like, Lord, whoa, why did you, why did you do that? Why, why did you kill that animal? What did he do? I like to think God explains why he had to do that. He explains because of their disobedience to his word, that innocent lamb, had to die. Had to die to cover your nakedness. I believe God wants them to gain a deeper understanding of the true state that they now find themselves in. God explains to them that there are consequences to their sin. When they disobey, when they sin, the result is death. I don't think Adam and Eve soon forget this lesson. And I'd like to think they impressed that on their two boys, too. So with that in mind, let's reread Genesis 4, 3 through 7. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the first of the ground, first fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So why did God have no regard for Cain's offering? Each man brings an offering to God and gains a different result. I think our first clue to understand this is uh, noticing that Cain brings a, a fruit offering or a grain offering. And this may be a bit of an oversimplification of God's law, but in the law that was provided through Moses, God commanded grain offering, and Cain is giving that here. Um, but under the law, it's more of the grain sacrifice was like a tithe offering. Now, Abel, he brings an animal sacrifice. And I'll, I also believe that he brings a grain and a fruit offering, but specifically, Abel brings the firstborn animal of his flock. And this is another major type of sacrifice that God gives in his law. The animal sacrifice is atonement for sin. So Abel seems to understand the need to honor God with both tithes and bring an atonement for his sin. But Cain is limiting his actions to tithing only. Cain seems to be fulfilling his religious duties, but he has no sense of his own sin and state before God. So that is why I believe God accepts Abel's offering, but not Cain's. Again, those who heard Pastor Eric's message uh, on the lambs and the goats and the Azazel, uh, they have a deep understanding of what, what these sacrifices mean. I mean can you imagine... 
the reaction from the Israelite camp if one of their own had no regard for the Azazel? Uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, it's a message that Pastor Eric preached a few months back called No, uh, no Fool. So, now with that in mind, let's take a very close look at verse 6. <clears throat> it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. This is where I really would like to examine the Hebrew of this verse. Um, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but stay with me here. I think this is going to be good. Um, I want to look at this with the possibility that it can be looked at in a different way than we read it in English. Uh, the Word of God is a many-sided jewel, right? And depending on the angle that you take it and you look at it and hold it, it can just sparkle in different ways. So I'd like to take this passage and just look at it a little bit different, different angle. I prepared this illustration uh, to help us. Okay, we've got the English translation here in the first column, the Hebrew words used in the second, and then the Strong's definition of the Hebrew in the third column there. Uh, and I really want to focus in on the third column with the Strong's definition. Now let's remember that the Hebrew language, it's very sparing which means there's not a lot of words used to put together a sentence. Um, a single word can convey a wide array of meanings and, um, and thoughts. For example, in this verse, just this one verse 7, there's 35 words used in the English compared to 10 in the Hebrew. Uh, and the English tr translation reads, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you but you must master it, which makes sense, and it can be applied to our lives, right? Is it not true that sin is crouching around the door waiting to devour us? <clears throat> but let's remember that this is God talking to Cain here, and God did not accept Cain's offering. And why? Because Cain didn't feel he needed to atone for his sin. So I believe God comes to Cain in the Hebrew and is preaching the gospel. I've got another slide here that's got a fourth column. Uh, in using the Strong's definition of the Hebrew, it can reveal this deeper meaning of this conversation between God and Cain. Again, I believe God is preaching the gospel to Cain. God is approaching Cain and saying, Why are you angry? If you do good, if you have no sin, then you will, will you not be lifted up, exalted, resurrected even? But if you do not do what is good, if you do have sin, then there is a sin offering lying stretched out. He is the doorway. Long for him and allow him to have dominion and reign over you. I wanted to read that one more time. If you do good, if you have no sin, then you will, then you will, then you will not be lifted up. Then will you not be lifted up? But if you do not do what is good, if you do have sin, then there is a sin offering lying stretched out, and he is the doorway. Long for him and allow him to have dominion and reign over you. Now, in the Jewish scripture interpretation, this would be considered a remez. Uh, 
which kind of hints or meaning behind the literal sense. But again, we're using the Strong's accepted definitions here. And you know what? The one word in Hebrew that makes me think we might be on the right track is the word teshua, the word for longing. Uh, it's a very unique word in that it's only used three times in the entire Bible. The first time is in Genesis uh, 3.16, when Eve is told that she will have a longing for her husband. It says, To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And the second one is in Song of Solomon 7.10, where a bride is talking about uh, the husband and how there's this longing. Where it says, I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. And then the third is used here, when God is talking to Cain. It's almost like God is trying to paint a picture that we should long for this sin offering like a bride longs for her husband. I look at this and I think every word of Scripture is truly amazing. I think Jesus was looking at a passage like this when he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of their prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What a beautiful picture of our need to recognize our sin and accept the atonement for that sin. In our country, it's all about self-reliance. Pulling yourself up in bootstraps and just being all that you can be. You know, the American dream, if you work hard enough, the sky's the limit. And I'm all for hard work and uh, you know, making a better situation for yourself. I'm, I believe working hard in the spiritual and in the natural is a biblical and godly way of life. But we have to be careful not to go too far with that when it comes to our relationship with God. I believe a lot of people, again, both inside and outside the church, I believe they can conquer their problems on their own. Churchgoers who intellectually acknowledge that Jesus died for them because of their sins, but haven't allowed Him and His Spirit to enter their lives. Strong American men and women who guard their own house, and while they're guarding it, everything appears to be safe. They trust in their own strength, whether it be their bank account, or their intellect, or their work ethic, or their network of friends. Whether they know it or not, it's a false security. Jesus warns us about this false security in uh, Luke 11. It says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. It's this idea that men and women think that they're able to make themselves clean, protect their own hearts, sweep their own hearts clean. Now, example in my own life, when I was in high school and a lot of college, I was involved in a deep, sinful lifestyle. I mean, I grew up in church and I knew the truth, but I had absolutely no fear of God and I lived like a total unbeliever. Um, as I got a little older, I started to clean up my act and try to get my life together and get serious about my life. And 
stopped living the obvious sinful lifestyle, began going to church again, I swept my house pretty clean. But there was something missing. I still had the desire to go back to that old sinful lifestyle. My problem was that I swept my house clean, but I didn't continue to fill it with God's holy presence, God's Holy Spirit. I believe in due time I would have fallen back to my old ways of life. Or even if I hadn't fallen back to it, I would have had an empty and hollow existence. Either way, I would have been worse off than I was before. Let's go back to Matthew 12. Uh, verse 43 it's a perfect illustration of this need to be filled with the Holy Spirit it says when an impure spirit comes out of a person it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it then it says I will return to the house I left when it arrives it finds the house unoccupied swept clean and put in order then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse off than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. It's the same idea of the strong man trying to guard his own house. No human being can conquer sin in and of themselves when they're trusting in the armor that they have. That someone stronger in Luke 11 is sin, and we are no match for it in and of ourselves. At some point, it will overpower us, and our plunder will be divided, and we'll be worse off than when we started. And the deceiving part is, in the land and culture that we find ourselves in, it's not immediately clear the situation we find ourselves in. It appears the path that we're on is just fine. But the road that leads to destruction is indeed broad, and many enter through it. And sometimes it takes an outsider to properly point out a blind spot we might have. I heard a story about a man who went to, on a mission trip to India. The man describes the vast altars there. I mean, idols as far as the uh, eye can see. There was an altar to a chicken god. Uh, there were feathers and blood everywhere, and... They just really worship everything you can imagine. And there was an Indian pastor with this man, uh, and the man asked, do you think you'll ever come to the United States and visit my country? She said, I, I did once, but I'll never come again. I cannot stomach the idolatry. She says this as they're standing next to the chicken god, <laughs> sacrificing chickens. He was thinking to himself, uh, that's not what I expected to hear. He said, where are the shrines of false worship and idolatry in our culture? She said, your God is your stomach. And there are restaurants everywhere. Your God is your sports teams, and you build multi-million dollar stadiums to house them. Your God is your television, and all the chairs in your home are lined up so that you and your family can gather around and worship that God. The idolatry is what we often see in someone else's culture. But in our culture, it's, it's just the Bass Pro Shop or politics or whatever it is that Pastor Matt was that area in your life. 
We just think it's a place where we get recreational sporting goods, the movie, the theater. We see it as entertainment. We see it as hobby. We see it as sport. We don't see it as religion. We don't see it as spirituality. We don't see it as idolatry. The road that leads to destruction is indeed broad, and many enter through it. And that road appears to be the road that leads to prosperity and life, and it's sometimes hard to understand why those on that path seem to live such wonderful lives. I'd like to say, first of all, that their lives are probably not as great as they would like you to believe. They're actually quite hollow. In addition, I echo the words of Jeremiah when he says, You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you, and I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless, faithless live at ease? I believe the spiritual truth is that the enemy will often try to keep us very comfortable in our sin. God's word is true when it proclaims that the wages of sin is death. But when we don't immediately see the wages of our sin, that can be a deceiving tactic used by the enemy. The world could look at true believers who spend their entire life following Jesus and being obedient to His Word. The world and those inside the church can look at a believer and then see all the struggles that they have to go through. They begin to ask themselves, that man or woman is one of the godliest people that I know. But they have to go through a lot of struggles. Explain to me, I mean, my life is great and easy. Explain to me how that works. Why would I want to put myself through that? The answer is sometimes the devil tries to make it where people live a life free of trouble because he doesn't want them turning to God. The spiritual reality is that we're all in a jail cell. But in the natural, it seems nice and comfy. So there doesn't seem any need to leave. The door to the cell is wide open. There has been a way to escape until one day time runs out and the door cell slams shut and suddenly it's too late. Jesus describes this scenario in Luke chapter 16. He says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And his gate was, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us.
Though it seems like we have an eternity to walk out of that jail cell, start walking with Jesus, the reality is that we have a short window of opportunity, but it will affect our eternity. You don't know when that prison door will be slammed shut. James 4.14 describes our life as a vapor. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James asks us to consider how unpredictable, insecure, and changeable our lives are. We're so busy with this present stage of life that we don't face the truthful reality that we're all just a vapor, a mist. This busyness not only includes our work schedules, but our entertainments and our cares and worries about the temporal things, the gyms, the restaurants, the stores. The sports complexes are filled, but the churches preaching the gospel message of repentance and faith in the cross are empty. What are we to do with this one life that we are given? The answer is to accept the atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and be filled with His Holy Spirit. Be filled so that sin does not overcome you. Be filled so that the one in us will indeed be more powerful than the one who is in the world. Be filled so that you can conquer sin in your own life and live the victorious freedom life filled that God has planned for you. And then and only then can we go out and not just make people aware of their sin, but have the answer. We don't have to leave them in their sin. We can direct them heavenward. And even more than that, we can bring the kingdom to them. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can tell people about the good news and get them filled with the Holy Spirit. We can pray for the sick and they'll be healed. Lay hands on demon-possessed people and see them cast out. Have power and signs that follow believers follow us, and we can see revival in our land. And it can start with you. And it can start with me. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to do this work in us. First and foremost, to convict us of our sin. Do not be hard-hearted about your sin. That is a deadly mistake. 1 John 1 says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. We're all in the same boat. This is a place of healing. Let's not go the way of Abel. Let's go the way of Abel and let's not go the way of Cain. Abel recognized his sin, and because of it, he was declared righteous. 1 John 3 says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Listen, this teaching is not intended to condemn anyone. 
there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but there is conviction. God gives us his word so that we can better follow him to remove the obstacles out of our way. Please understand that when Jesus speaks to us this way, it's intended for our benefit to build up his holy bride. This is prophesied in uh, Isaiah 57, 14, where it says, And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. It says, remove the obstacles. Throw off everything that hinders. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. It's got a couple more passages, and we're going to get right across. Hebrews 12.1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It says, Lay aside everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Not just sins. Don't just lay aside sins in this race. Lay aside every other weight that gets in your way. Don't just ask, what's wrong with it? Don't just ask, is it a sin? Now, if you're a new believer listening to this, then yes, the right question to ask is, is it a sin? If you're a new believer and just trying to figure out how to walk with Jesus and what this looks like, then yes, look into his word. If it's something that he prohibits, if it's a sin, then don't do it. Simple as that. But those who are more mature in the faith, been walking with Jesus for some time now, the question, is it a sin, can be about one of the most carnal questions you ask. So what would be the right question for a more mature believer? Does it help me run? Does it get in my way when I'm trying to be more like Jesus? Or does it help me be more patient, more kind, less proud, less selfish? Does it delight in evil or does it rejoice with the truth? Does it instill love that will protect, trust, and hope? Does it help me persevere on with my walk with Jesus? The question is, does it get in my way or does it help me run? Look to Jesus and lay aside sins for sure. And a whole bunch of other stuff. And as you're listening to this or as you're trying to apply this to your life and live it out, you may have a little battle within yourself that says, this looks like a lot of loss and not much gain. And the truth is, it will be a lot of loss. It's going to be tough. But we continue to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Do you not think the cross of Calvary was tough for Jesus? He agonized to the point of sweating blood. How did he face such loss. Hebrews 12.2 tells us, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Yes, it's true. It's going to be lost. But on the authority of God's word, the Christian life is gain. Say to the flesh, say to the ways of the world, say to the enemy, the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to me. So I will lay aside every sin. I will lay aside every weight. I will take captive every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and I will run with Jesus. It goes on to say in uh, Hebrews 12.5, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. I don't worry about those who are feeling disciplined or convicted right now. I worry about those who aren't. I've got one more passage, and then we're going to close. Um, Can you all turn with me to Revelation 3? Again, let's keep this thought in mind that the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. I've read this letter to the church in Laodicea so many times, and I thought, man, God is really angry with this church. And uh, it is probably a very righteous anger coming, righteous, holy anger coming from Jesus. But he says it to them as a way of removing obstacles in our lives so that he may build us up, so that we may run with him. He rebukes and disciplines the ones that he loves. So as we close, let's receive these words of Jesus. And if you need to confess sin tonight, then do it. Don't wait, just do it. If you need to get filled with his spirit tonight, get filled. Whether it be for the first time or for the hundredth, receive the power from on high so that you will have the power inside of you to conquer the sin in your own life. And you can't give what you don't have. We need his power so that we can share it with others and bring light into the dark world. Get what you need from the Lord. He's a good father, and he gives freely to those who ask. So as we close, let's listen to the words of our resurrected king who loves us. In an effort to uh, apply it to our own lives, I'm going to change the church that it's addressed to. To the angel of the church in the United States of America, right? These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. 
Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me.